Hello, and welcome to the BPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Dr. Michael Flam from Ohio Wesleyan University. So thank you, Michael, for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So Michael Flam is a scholar of modern American political history who joined the Ohio Wesleyan University faculty in 1998. At Ohio Wesleyan, he's received three teaching prizes, including the university's highest honor, the Bishop Herbert Welch Meritorious Teaching Award in 2012. He was elected in 2019 to the executive board of the Organization of American Historians, the largest professional association dedicated to the teaching and study of U.S. history. Professor Flam is the author or co-author of five books, as well as numerous articles and reviews. So Professor Flam will be hosting a program here at Bexley Public Library on Thursday, August 29th at 7 p.m., titled The Sounds of Music, Woodstock and Altamont, 50 Years Later. So we're just going to talk a bit about that program and a few other things today. So, Michael, for those unfamiliar with Woodstock and Altamont, can you give an overview of both events? Uh, Woodstock and Altamont were two mass music festivals that took place in the summer of 1969. Uh, They weren't the first mass music festivals, but they become very important because they're symbolic of where the counterculture stands at the end of the 1960s. Um, And uh, historically, if perhaps a little simplistically, Woodstock has come to sort of symbolize the positive side of the counterculture, the possibility of creating a society based on peace and harmony, whereas Altamont, which took place a few years later at a speedway just outside of Oakland, uh, has come to symbolize the darker side, perhaps, uh, of the counterculture and what it was doing to America. Okay, and, and so with those two sort of um, opposing aspects of the counterculture, can you go into a, a little bit of why those two events represent those opposite sides? So Woodstock was a uh, three-day music festival held in, in upstate New York. Uh, in fact, it actually went to a fourth day, but it was originally a uh, three-day music festival. Um, it featured many of the best-known acts of the 1960s, um, from Jimi Hendrix to The Who to Sly and the Family Stone to, you know, you name it. Virtually everyone who was anyone in rock music showed up at Woodstock to play a set during this three-day festival. Mm-hmm. Um, the organizers uh, had planned on a couple hundred thousand people showing up. Uh, somewhere between 400 and 500,000 people showed up. Uh, the organizers had hoped to sell tickets, but they didn't get the fences up in time, and too many people showed up, and it turned out to be the largest free music festival we've ever had in the United States. Uh, went on for three days. Many people had a lot of fun. Uh, there were some challenges along the way, uh, but the community met it in a sort of positive way. Um, and as I said, so Woodstock... Well, the farmer who let this concert take place or, or arranged to let his land be used said later, you know, this just proves that young people can listen to music and have, you know, three days of fun and nothing but fun. A little more complicated than that, but it, it was very positive. No violence, um, mm-hmm. no deaths. Um, plenty of drugs were consumed, but no bad overdoses. They ran out of food, but the community pitched in and gave them extra food. Uh, didn't have enough medical care, but... Believe it or not, 45 Army doctors volunteered to go, and, and wow. uh, the Army brought them in by helicopter. You know, It was really an example of the community both there and around sort of coming together in a positive way to listen to music and enjoy this mm-hmm. festival. Um, but originally, I just always make my... Woodstock was intended to be a money-making 
festival by the organizers. It turned out to be a free concert because they didn't quite get their act together in time. Okay. Altamont, which takes place a couple of months later, um, on the other coast in California at this uh, racetrack speedway, actually, just outside of Oakland. This was always intended to be a free concert um, sponsored by the Rolling Stones as a thank you to their fans. The Rolling Stones were finishing um, a cross-country tour, and they, they saw Woodstock, and they thought this would be a great sort of gesture to our fans. It was always intended to be free. Um, because it was free, Mick Jagger decided that he would cut costs and turn over security to a motorcycle gang known as Hell's Angels. And famously, Hell's Angels provided their services in return for $300 worth of beer and complete control of all drug sales within the concert. And this drug monopoly leads to a confrontation, confrontation between some members of the gang and uh, a freelance independent drug dealer who winds up getting beaten to death. And this is the event, this death, this brutal beating that kind of casts a pall not only over Altamont, but symbolically over the whole sort of counterculture spirit. I see, and uh, yeah, so as, as a historian, uh, what, what sort of drew you to these events? What made you want to learn more about them? Well, I've always featured them in the class I teach on the 1960s. I do think they're really important because they have this incredible reputation within the history of the music of the 1960s, which is an incredibly rich and interesting subject. And in fact, in my presentation here at the library um, on August 20th, I'm going to spend an equal part of time on what's happening in American music during the 1960s, why it's so important and significant even today, um, why the music of the 60s is so rich and diverse and complicated, talk a little bit about the role of technology. And then, of course, it's the 50th anniversary of what happened in the summer of 1969. And so it seems like a good point to kind of go back and reflect on what it all means. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you mentioned sort of the legacy of the, the effects on society or how we've, we've looked back on the 60s and the counterculture movement. From a musical standpoint, do you, do you have any insights on how those festivals have influenced American music festival culture? I mean, Woodstock really becomes the model or the template for future mass music festivals. Um, pretty much every subsequent festival has looked at Woodstock, emulated what went right, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and have, has seen where there were some problems and issues and tried to figure out how we can correct in the future. Um, I think communities that have also authorized these kinds of festivals have also looked to see what the community around Bethel, New York, this small town, I'd say, um, what they did that was positive and maybe what other communities in the future should look for in terms of traffic control. Okay. okay. There were huge traffic jams. These small country roads were not mm -hmm. prepared to handle the number of cars and traffic, et cetera. So I think in both positive and negative ways, this has become a model sort of for future concerts. Um, even sort of from a monetary standpoint, the organizers of Woodstock, as I mentioned, hoped to make money from the outset on ticket sales. That fell through. They eventually recouped their losses by making a famous documentary about Woodstock, albums, mm -hmm. nostalgic. Um, just even a larger principle here, um, ever since Woodstock, uh, this idea of capitalizing and merchandising on sort of nostalgia, rock nostalgia, has become a big part of a lot of music festivals also. So it, it really does become the model for every subsequent mass music festival we have in this country. Uh, very, yeah, it's very interesting. and. and there are so many musical music festivals these days, so yeah, clearly 
they did something right. No, and, they certainly did, and they certainly created um, an impression and a memory mm -hmm. that has lasted. Although I like to joke, and this is sort of a standard cliche about Woodstock, which is that if you say you were there, you really weren't. You know, as I also tell my students, you know, we estimate between 400 and 500,000 people were actually at Woodstock in 1969. Today, I don't know, 10 million people claim they were. I, I right. have no idea how many <laughs> people say they were at Woodstock and, <laughs> and you know, think they were at Woodstock, dream right. they were at Woodstock. Um, there's also been some, even the musicians themselves have foggy memories. You know, there's a couple of, Country Joe and the Fish is convinced that they launched the, the whole festival at Woodstock, but they actually didn't play till the second day. I mean, oh, you know, wow. no, no one really remembers accurately what was going on there for different reasons. Sure, yeah. 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 But imagine drugs may or may not have something to do with Age, some of that. drugs, you know, who knows? <laughs> this, we all want to remember the past in different ways. Yeah. So, you know. yeah. yeah, do you have any thoughts on the sort of subsequent anniversary Woodstock shows? I think that Woodstock captured lightning in a bottle. So many things went right that were unanticipated, unintended, unintended. It just worked out. You know, I think the subsequent concerts have, have succeeded to some degree. They've been less spontaneous, more organized. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've been able to capture the moment or to use like a pretentious German word, haven't managed to capture the zeitgeist you know, the spirit of the times quite the way Woodstock did. I mean, I think they've been successful in different ways. Certainly the music's been great. Um, the sound quality was probably better too, you know, in, <laughs> sure. in a lot of respects. Sure. Um, but I, I don't know if we'll ever recapture the magic of that original Woodstock experience. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Did you hear about the uh, the 50th anniversary festival getting canceled? I did, I did. And, and I thought it was too bad, uh, but I'm not completely surprised either. Um, it's it's hard to recapture something as unique and special as the original Woodstock. Sure. I also will just point out that a lot of the original attendees are now getting up there in age. I'm not sure whether they're going to go. And I'm not sure how much a younger generation is sort of interested in it. I don't want to take us too far afield, but the technology has changed so much. We no longer have a mass music culture. Um, thanks to the internet, thanks to iPods, thanks to the way we, we create our experience, mm -hmm. everyone listens to their own music, creates their own world. It's much harder for groups to have a mass following because we've splintered and fragmented the listening audience so much. Those mass music festivals of the 60s are based on a culture of music that just mm -hmm. no longer exists. So what acts could possibly have the kind of following that groups in the 60s had? Um, you know, it's, it's just no longer there. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. I, I think about this a lot, actually, and how sort of the the monoculture or the uh, um, just the, the level of um, mass penetration that art, artists used to enjoy um, since the advent of the internet and sort of this great equalization of it's it's a lot cheaper to record music and produce music. It's a lot easier to reach you know a certain amount of people, not as many people, but so the music industry is yeah really flipped on its head. I mean, the, the entire economics of the music industry has changed. Yeah. Um, I think really the biggest difference is that in the 1960s, it was radio that was driving mm -hmm. the popularity of bands and record sales. And radio was creating this mass listening audience for certain groups, certain songs. And today, 
you know, it's almost impossible for a group to achieve that kind of success because everyone is doing their own thing. They're going to iTunes, they're buying a song here, they're buying a song there, they're putting together their own playlists on iTunes. I also just, uh, another graphic example is whenever I see people listening to music now, you know, they've got, uh, you know, earphones, earbuds, headsets, whatever, as opposed to listening to music through the radio, which was a communal collective experience. Sure. You rarely see people doing that anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot, that's, that's to be certain. Yeah. yeah. This is also sort of go- enjoying this tangent here. Sure. Um, so did you happen to see the, either of the documentaries that came out about the, the fire Festival? I did, yes, I watched those. So um, <laughs> just thinking about music festivals, and there's certainly uh, a lot to be said about how shady those dealings were. Um, but it did give me a little bit of insight on to how much work putting on a music festival is and um, how, how many things go into it in terms of securing the, you know, the land, the infrastructure, food, water, et cetera, all these things I'd never really thought about. It also, was, looking at that, it, it struck me how much the expectations of people who go to a music festival has changed. At Woodstock, mm-hmm. for example, it's a three-day festival. Plenty of people showed up with a blanket, Right. Some people had a sleeping bag. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure what people expected, but no one expected lavish luxury accommodations or anything of that sort. Everyone kind of knew that they were going to upstate New York, and for three days they were going to kind of be sitting on the ground, listening mm-hmm. to music, sleeping. Some people brought food. Some people assumed that they would just be able to buy or get food. Right. You know, <laughs> primitive uh, bathroom facilities were the best <laughs> anyone expected. I mean... Yeah. It was just a completely different culture in terms of expectations. That was, you still had more of the hippie and the counterculture idea, as opposed to with the fire festival, it very much seemed aimed at a completely different market and oh, audience. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely a higher end or boutique, I guess you would say, sort of experience. And and definitely, I, I forget which which documentary it was. I watched them both, but one of them really did a nice job of explaining how they were trying to capture that younger. Uh, audience who is obsessed with missing out on things, you know, fear of missing out, um, and kind of designing it from the the very uh, origin, and at least how they presented the festival. Of course, mm-hmm. not how it actually ended up as this once in a lifetime experience. That's and right. It, trying to capitalize on that versus you know this mass uh, event of of culture and music, and it's a lot more sort of uh, just about the music and the 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 you know uh, simpler experience, I guess you would say. And I'm always reluctant to to read into what people's intentions are because, as I say, as a historian, I can't look into somebody's heart and know what they really intend. Right. Um, but from my just general perspective, it seems like the organizers of some of these subsequent festivals, like are, are utterly cynical from the start. Whereas when you look at Woodstock, you had two organizers who were interested in making money. They were capitalists. They thought that. And two others who really saw this as a creative opportunity to make some kind of statement about their generation and their culture mm-hmm. and, and, and do something that would be lasting in a kind of cultural way. Um, and they cared a lot more about the music. I mean, they gave a lot more thought to that aspect of it than luxury accommodations or branding or all of these other, other aspects. Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned sort of the, the cynicism of, uh, of maybe some of these creators or... Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, as someone who loves going to, to, to concerts, especially, you know, smaller scale concerts and whatnot, um, you know, people ask, why don't you ever go to music festivals? And it, 
it's so much not about the music these days. It seems like uh, the f- the festival experience. Of course, I'm speaking in broad terms. There mm-hmm. are, there have to be exceptions out there, but um, yeah, a friend of mine joked that it combines the worst elements of going to concerts and of camping <laughs> these days. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to laugh at that, but um, but yes, it's it's certainly it's it's a different. And I look, I don't want to. I mean. The Jazz Festival in New Orleans is a great experience. Oh, South yeah, by sure. Southwest in Austin is a great experience. I don't want to dismiss all of the festivals mm-hmm. that are taking place right now. Yeah. Um, in many cases, they're a different kind of experience, and that's fine. And I think the organizers of those festivals do, in fact, care about the music and making an artistic statement. So, yeah, sure, I don't want yeah. to dismiss everything out of hand and come across as some cranky old person who right. says it was all better 50 <laughs> years ago and everything is terrible right. today. Yeah. Um, but it has changed in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. So completely out of left field here, as I was reading your bio, um, you're a big Minnesota sports fan, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Um, so I'm a big NBA fan. So uh, I saw that you were a Timberwolves fan. So first, I'd like to apologize. <laughs> Sorry for the years of, of torment. But Thank you. I appreciate your, your <laughs> condescension or whatever we want to call it. Yes, thank no, you. it comes from a good place. Uh, I mean, as a longtime Cavs fan, of course, recently... Yeah. With LeBron, uh, that's been great, but uh, I have no hopes for anything in the future <laughs> with that team. But anyway, so, so how are you feeling about the Timberwolves these days? You know, I, I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, I think that when you're a small market team and you put all your chips on a lottery player um, like Andrew Wiggins and it doesn't work out, you're really in trouble mm-hmm. financially as well as, as, you know, just as a team. I know. I, I hope they can do things better in the future. But I think the NBA now is increasingly a player-driven league, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Players generally don't want to play in Minnesota. It's too small market and cold and distant. Right. So you're never going to attract free agents or players of that nature if you don't, you know, hit on the right draft choice and capture lightning in a bottle, you're in trouble. So I I fear years of mediocrity. (laughs) Maybe someday things will work out, but... uh, we used to say in Minnesota that to be a Minnesota sports fan is to suffer. Um, sure. And, and that, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, my son is now a Minnesota fan, but he sort of jumped on the bandwagon, for example, with the Minnesota Twins, who are now good again. Mm, so yeah. he's enjoying that experience, and the Twins and the Indians should have some exciting games to play in the next month or so. So yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right about you basically have to knock drafting out of the park as a small market team. And, you know, even if you look at a team like Oklahoma City, and they, they had some of the most impeccable draft choices over the years, and they still never won a title, you know, as a small market team. So it's it's tough. Or you just hope that someone like LeBron happens to grow up in your state and yeah. have some <laughs> loyalty to his family and friends in the state. Um, exactly. But otherwise, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, that, that gets you one ring, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's if you're exactly. Cleveland, so <laughs> you know the interesting thing, though, I do reflect on this now, and again, we're we're taking this conversation afield. <laughs> but when I think of my son and his friends, they are no longer geographically bound in terms of their team loyalties. Now that you have NBA.com and you mm-hmm. have MLB.com, they have the ability to stream the games of any team in the country at any time. So. It's not as though they sit down in the evening and say, I have to watch the Indians or the Cavs or the local Mm -hmm. team. It's like, no, I'm going to follow the Lakers or I'm going to follow whatever team I care about. And it's just, it's simply a different world. And I think about sports loyalty in the future. It won't necessarily be determined geographically. Um, Musical tastes are now determined by all kinds of different elements. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's going to have a profound impact on our culture and sports and all these other other aspects. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very true. I mean, I'm a textbook example of that. I mean, the Cavs are my favorite team, but my second favorite team are the Memphis Grizzlies, and I've never been to Memphis. I've I've never even been to the city, so I just really enjoy the franchise and the team and the players. So yeah, you're absolutely right. If you can get League Pass and watch all of their games. That's right. (laughs) No, and and I think increasingly it's also interesting, you may have noticed, that um, for ordinary fans, the price of an individual ticket is now so high, particularly in comparison to purchasing League Pass or something else like that, for the price of going to one game, you can watch every team's game at any time. Yeah, and now they they have virtual reality offerings, apparently, and so you can get courtside seats uh, through virtual reality, which are astronomically priced. So for someone like me, I'll probably... (laughs) Never do that, but I'll do it. I'll do it virtual reality, maybe. No. Now, and one thing as a historian, I'll point out: culture, technology has been shaping and changing culture throughout the 20th century and even prior to the 20th century. The best example, and I am going to talk about it um, here at the library on, on August 29th, is that in 1965, the Federal Communications Commission authorized FM radio. It was all AM radio before 1965. Now, when the FCC permitted FM radio to come on the air, FM, of course, for those of you who've never understood this, AM is mono, FM was stereo, so it was a much better listening experience if you were listening to music. Uh, The FCC said that the new FM radio stations could not duplicate an existing radio format in any market. So what that means is that if you're living here in Columbus and there's already an AM radio station that is playing top 40 hits. Mm -hmm. You can't start an FM radio station with the same format and start playing the same songs. So all across the United States, you have FM radio stations that want to capitalize on this youth market. They want to play rock music, but they can't play the top 40 hits. So what they start to play are longer songs, songs that don't fit the traditional two and a half to three and a half minute format. Or they begin playing entire album sides or entire albums. And so suddenly you start to see the emergence of concept albums. You know, The Who releases Tommy, Pink Floyd does Dark Side of the Moon. All of these albums that traditionally would never have gotten airplay on an AM top 40 radio station Mm -hmm. are getting airplay on FM. And through that exposure, they're becoming successful, which means that the recording companies are much more willing to support artists who have ideas for longer songs Mm -hmm. or concept albums or something that's not your traditional two-and-a-half-minute pop hit. Mm -hmm. And so technology is changing the entire music business, the recording, even as Woodstock and Altamont are taking place and as we move into the 70s. So this is a constant process you never have one unchanging moment. Sure, and that's very interesting. I, I, did, I didn't know that FM radio and that distinction um, sort of impacted the longer songs, the concept albums, sort of moving into more progressive rock and that, that type of stuff. And, um, Would Stairway to Heaven have become the song that it is without FM radio to push it and play it? There's so many unknowns out here, and the great albums that we think of in the 70s are mostly products of FM, which tells the record companies, no, there's commercial possibilities here. We can get it out to an audience, build an audience. And let's also be clear, in the 1960s and 70s, groups made their money through record sales, through Mm -hmm. album sales. Touring was a way of promoting record sales. Mm -hmm. Today, we've completely flipped that model on its head. 
many artists release singles or they release albums, but the money comes from touring and playing concerts, and, and that's what it's all about for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, another thing that was is sort of reversed is now there's there's less emphasis on the album, um, unlike in you know the situation you just mentioned. Um, yeah, it's more about constantly releasing singles or even maybe EPs, just constantly having your name in the sort of news stream versus you know an entire album or double album, concept album, any of that kind of thing. Releasing an album is almost um, against your interest because, as you said, if you want to keep your name out there in public to produce ticket sales as you tour, mm -hmm. then don't release an album every two or three years. Try to release a new song every couple of months. Hope that one or two go viral on YouTube or some other situation. Mm -hmm. Then when you're out touring, people will buy tickets to come and hear you play. That's yeah. a much smarter business strategy. Um, I would say that most of my students, the concept of even purchasing an album is also alien and strange. Like, no, I just buy the songs that I like or I steal the songs that I like in some cases, too. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Um, it's, it's changed so much. Um, so sort of coming back to your library program. Mm -hmm. um, so again, so that's Thursday, August 29th at 7 p.m. You'll be discussing uh, Woodstock and, and Altamont. Um, you mentioned there's a... A PBS documentary about Woodstock coming out, is that right? Yes, thank you. There's a brand new documentary um, about Woodstock that has just started um, airing or streaming on PBS, which you can access in different ways, and I highly recommend it. I do want to let those who might be listening know also that I will be playing plenty of music on August 29th, so you will not just have to listen to my voice, but you'll actually be able to hear some, uh, some really fine musical performances, including, I think, some surprising bits of uh, music history and trivia from the 60s. Okay, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a great program. So, again, for anyone listening out there, um, please check it out Thursday, August 29th at 7 p.m. And I want to thank Michael Flam again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And that's all the time we have for today's podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and thanks for listening. <laughs>